Hey there, I'm Kelly Vigent, Executive Assistant at Stavi, and you're tuned into Finside Chats. Welcome to the Finside Chats podcast. This podcast is for the relentlessly curious and dives headfirst into the timely and complicated topics that live and breathe in the fintech, startup, and mortgage lending spaces. Jeremy, it's uh, great to have you back to the, do we call this a show podcast? I mean, maybe a little bit of both, some serious entertainment, maybe. I don't know that we need to to have you go into your extended introduction since I know several episodes ago that uh, you gave a little bit about your background, but maybe uh, just a quick introduction about uh, who you are and what you're up to. Sure. Great to be here talking with you. So I am the Vice President of Legal and Capital Markets here at Stabby. I like to say that means working on what's next. My experience with product development, innovation, and specifically technology dates back to Dodd-Frank and the crash in the financial crisis. That's when I joined the industry, which was as a consumer protection attorney helping mortgage companies adapt to what we were calling then the new world. And so that goes back to when I first met Costa and bringing the industry hopefully up to the regulatory standards and a lot of what came with that was compliance and technology. And of course, technology hasn't stopped. My old leader used to say, the only thing in the mortgage industry you can count on is change. So that's where we are uh, today. And so thinking a lot about how emerging technologies are putting pressure on the financial services and fintech industry, how companies should be thinking about emerging tech, how product development has changed, how product strategy has changed. And so when you hear me say, what's next? It's a lot of that baked into that that one sentence. I've always appreciated how how diverse your background is. I, obviously, during the intro, you talked a lot about your life as an attorney, much like one of our esteemed co-founders here at Stavi, who refers to himself as a recovering attorney. I've always just been impressed by uh, your general knowledge about technology and how it can truly impact entire ecosystems and perhaps uh, entire the entire financial system. And the macro view has been really helpful. And I guess I would ask, like, how do we take what we could see as a possible future, which might be substantially different than what exists today, and back that down into the smaller changes that are going to be required all the way down to like an individual institution? Like how, how should lenders think about that? But how should companies like Stavi think about enabling that type of change? Yeah, I think one of the biggest changes has been the actual technology itself and the capabilities themselves over the last, call it 10 years. And what I mean by that is software solutions like an LOS, for instance, a loan origination system, were a big implementation across your entire organization, capturing specific rules about each persona that uses that system, each data point that data field and and where that data field interacts for, you know, behind the scenes, regulatory or compliance testing or calculations and underwriting, or some other feed into a document management, document production or disclosure system. So we're talking about a massive piece of software that needs to be implemented. Back when I first started in the industry, it, it was also hosted generally by the lender or financial institution. And so what when you say we're looking to the future we're leaving that world of this big massive system 
where everything needs to be uh, architected and articulated about the rules and about how the process is going to flow to a much more dynamic system where individual discrete services, individual discrete software, features, apps, capabilities can all be selected and implemented in your business. So instead of having HELOC, mortgage, consumer lending, car loans, all on three separate systems, increasingly lenders and financial institutions are looking for ways, what are the component parts of each of those processes I can run off of the same engine or I can run off the same service? How can I call a service anytime I need to do X, Y, or Z activity or capability? So where the future is headed is actually much less the I need to make a two, three, four, five-year decision about a massive implementation to a huge piece of technology that's going to govern a major part of my business to I need to take this work, this issue, and I need to make it digital or I need to delegate it to technology or I need a solution that is more dynamic and I will actually customize it to my people, my products, my institution, and more and more providers, more and more technology companies are making that possible. So that brings up the question of how do you think about process and how do you blueprint process in a world that you kind of pick and choose which pieces you want to be digital when and how many services uh, get called from which parts of your organization. Increasingly, that means internal communication within financial institutions. It also means making these technology architecture decisions at a higher level in the institution so that somebody leading mortgage or somebody leading consumer lending or someone leading auto lending, you know, all have to work together if a system can actually serve, you know, all those outcomes or the best example would be borrower, you know, the customer experience. I think it leads in really well to the next question, which is, you know, about failure in change initiatives. And, you know, I think a lot about EMR implementations at hospitals and how there are some really well-respected, trusted technologists that get called in to fix, you know, sometimes multi-billion dollar implementation uh, failures of EMR systems. It's an interesting parallel to like loan origination systems or these other kind of integral, huge systems that, that lenders have to put in place. Do you see that, I suspect there's going to be a shift, it might come full circle at some point, but I, I think what I'm hearing you say is that there's going to be a shift to the fact that a lot of these initiatives are going to be much more modular and componentized. So even if it is a failure or there is a failure, the cost of that failure is going to be smaller. The time to realize it's a failure is going to be shorter and, and the ability to kind of like learn and move forward faster is going to be something that was possible in a way that wasn't before. So I, I kind of am paraphrasing what you just said to the question around, you know, failure, but I'm curious uh, your broader perspective on that and how, you know, one, am I getting that right? Yes, the two ways I think about it. One, there is there's a failure at the outset with any technology change management process, which is a lack of articulating or documenting internal processes. And so it's really hard to pick the right modular services in the right order or to pick uh, to lay out a workflow end to end if you don't actually know it or have it documented. And so especially mid-sized and smaller entity companies, thinking about how you, are you buying technology to support your process and workflow? 
or are you asking for a workflow? You know, when I mentioned earlier about LOS, I think a lot of institutions try to buy a new LOS, add a new LOS, or implement a new LOS because they want a workflow, right? They want the LOS to dictate the workflow, or they think, maybe even implicitly think, that's what's going to happen with a new piece of technology, rather than what I think you're saying, Josh, which is if you lay it out properly uh, according to your workflow, you can then pick and choose the most urgent parts, the most manual parts, the most toilsome parts, the most expensive parts uh, to digitize or to give to technology, to delegate to technology first and foremost. So that's one piece at the outset. The other way I think about failure is when there's a change, when there's a break, when there's an issue that you didn't foresee, unintended consequences, or you know the world shifts in some way, then you don't have to address the entire, potentially the entire organization or the entire technology, there are pieces now that just a part of it has to be addressed. So take uh, COVID-19 adoption, uh, work from home adoption by most banks and mortgage lenders. For the most part, point of sale had been digitized. A lot of internal communications have been digitized. Underwriting largely had all the tools that underwriters needed. And so the pieces that needed to be addressed or that were the hardest and the biggest issues in that kind of quote unquote failure scenario were anything left with paper or people having to work together, wet ink signatures. And so you can imagine that the entire LOS, the entire mortgage process, the entire uh, lending process did not need to change when people worked from home or the entire organization worked from home. It was actually just pieces that needed emergency care. In the future, that would be even smaller and even smaller instances uh, to the future that you just described. So one of the things, Jeremy, that's interesting is looking at these change initiatives includes everything from assessing and evaluating to implementing new tech. But what about, and I want to get specific, what about technology change initiatives that, that tend to fail? Like, is there something that um, seems to be sort of ubiquitous and more specifically around uh, loan origination or real estate, you know, closing platforms or real estate closing initiatives? I think one of the things I think about a lot for Stabby is the fact that these solutions and companies have popped up over the years to either digitize or provide a solution for one participant in a very complex, fragmented process. And so that solution or that, that piece of technology does do what it is intended to do. It'll help a settlement agent or a notary or a real estate agent or a mortgage closer at a, at a lender solve their problem. But what seems to happen often is those solutions, while maybe easily adopted, don't actually solve pain or don't actually do what maybe was intended because there are still gaps and there are still blind spots in between. Or while one system has the data, another system can't see it or use it. While one individual is doing their job, another individual can't access that same file or that same information. And so I think one of the things we're seeing increasingly is the, the way the world works and thinks is affecting or causing to fail what in a vacuum would be a successful solution. If you didn't have to have it interact with seven other moving pieces at the same time, it might be a great solution. But once you start to try to orchestrate all these moving pieces 
all these different discrete solutions that have popped up for one player. And so, Costa, you were saying specifically around closing itself, there are a lot of industries, separate industries, all coming to the table at the same time. If you want to think about it that way, I think a lot of people would think of a mortgage closing as one industry. We don't in our world, right? It's the title insurance industry, it's settlement, it's real estate, and it's mortgage. And so I think that there you actually have to also have kind of cross communication between your systems. So you can pick an LOS, make a really good decision, taking that LOS. It has to be able to talk to three or four other systems that will create the documents for closing, transmit the documents to the entity that you want or that the consumer has chosen to close their loan. So we're talking settlement companies, title companies, attorneys. It has to be able to talk to whatever system is going to collect, verify, and transmit the collateral. So where's the note go? Where's the mortgage go? And where do those get verified and delivered? And then onboarding into the future of that asset, whether that means it's going to a servicer, a subservicer, Fannie, Freddie, and Ginny's buying the loan. So what I mean by that is you can actually see failures in a very well-constructed thought process if you're kind of making decisions in each piece or picking a vendor in each piece without thinking through, how's all this going to work together? And then as soon as you get to the point of having it all work together, um, there are gaps, gaps around visibility, gaps around transparency, or gaps around data transfer that take a long time to to fix to your fully operational, if, if ever. You said something in there about orchestration, which has always, to me, seemed to be a missing puzzle piece for this industry in that a lot of the technology vendors in this space seem to want to do as much as they possibly can And so they build some walls up around their ecosystems. I've obviously been vocal about my opinion on that, but I don't know if you've heard it. And so I don't want to anchor you too hard. How much does that mindset in technology in this industry affect the ability to actually orchestrate change to these processes? I've been thinking about it a lot, not just because we've been talking about it a lot, Josh, but because going back several years, I was in a operational workflow process optimization meeting. And one of our leaders showed a video of the difference in a pit stop in Formula One racing between, I think it was like 1965 or whatever. uh, And then the eighties or nineties, and then, you know, 2015 and the ability for a team to come together around a car, it went from uh, 60 seconds to 1.9 seconds that the pit crew was optimized, still a bunch of people. And one of the things I recognized in the video was that pit crews actually got larger and faster. So it wasn't that these tools that made them faster reduced the number of people around the car. There are actually more people descending on the car, but again, doing everything they needed to do in 1.9 seconds. And so the, what it got me thinking about in, in your question, Josh, is we are still handing a loan file around, even though it's digital, as if it was a manila file folder of documents. And we have not actually reframed the work that needs to go into closing a loan. What we've done as an industry is simply digitize the 
the leapfrog process or the stone by stone across the creek process of closing a mortgage. And so I think when I think about what you're saying to me, it is how do you orchestrate now in a pit crew, you're all on the same team using the same equipment, wearing the same uniform. That is not true (laughs) of a mortgage closing. So I get that. But the point is, how do you actually allow groups of people to come together to do everything they need to do at the same time in parallel while you maintain data integrity, cybersecurity, permissions, personas, and, and all of the regulatory compliance we would expect to deliver a fully enforceable asset to the owner, to the investor. And so I'm thinking of it much more that way. It's really interesting because at the very end, you talked about how that's not how it's done in the mortgage industry. Uh, but when there's several other industries, in fact, most of the most innovative industries, when you look at how successful and transformative they become, it's almost always driven by the fact that they are taking a bunch of different entities that could have been competitors, right? But actually turning entire ecosystems into these environments where these entities actually are making each other more successful. That's when the real magic will start to happen here. I mean, whether you're looking at, you know, uh, individual games or app developers and and the Google Play Store, or the Apple App Store, or you're looking at you're looking at Slack or Microsoft Teams or even Zoom with all of the integrations that they have. I mean, there's entire companies that have been created that will integrate with Teams or Zoom to transcribe and take notes. That is not something that's happening in this environment, and you're finally starting to see it happen in healthcare in a way. Uh, over the past, let's say two or three years, you know, they had a very similar situation in healthcare that I think you're facing, you're seeing in the mortgage industry right now from a technology perspective. And you started to see providers like Apple and Google break those barriers down to the extent where if you're at Partners Healthcare and you have a lab test done, you can get a push notification through Apple Health with what the result is as soon as it's ready. You don't even need the Mass General app to do that. And so, I'm personally, and I'm really curious what Costa's take is on this because he's been in this world a lot longer than I have. I'm like really expecting that once the first dominoes in this world drop in terms of technology providers starting to play together to help orchestrate these your transactions in a much more seamless and beautiful way, that you'll start to see over a course of three to five years, all of the walls fall and it'll be a period of enormous transformation. Am I being too optimistic, Costa? No, I mean, I think, the, I mean, that is certainly the end state. And I think that's the ideal state. I think it, it's going to take a lot longer than we expect because there are a lot of companies that feel that whether it be for security, whether it be for, you know, relevance, whether it be for, you know, whatever the fact may be, uh, or try to control aspects of uh, aspects of the life cycle and make it difficult to integrate. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, I know we've, we've talked about this uh, often. And I think, um, you know, when you listen back to um, some of the podcasts, we talk about technology being the great equalizer. At the end of the day, I think that, you know, taking a position that you're not going to cooperate in the defragmentation in this space is probably not a sustainable long-term strategy. So Jeremy, I'd love to hear, and maybe we could finish with just sort of like your perspectives around your background at Rocket, now being at an early stage startup at Stabbing, being able to really dig into what we're working on on the product side and talk to engineering, but also you know be front and center with some of our customers and, and some of the partnerships and initiatives. What are some of the recommendations? Like it's it's overwhelming for for some lenders to sort of like go out and try to figure where do we start in terms of 
technology change? Like what should be, where should we be looking? What do we tackle first? What do we tackle last? What do we just leave alone? Like if you were advising a lender, what would you tell them? Like where should they be focused right now? Yeah, I think one of the things I'm most excited about or where my mind goes here is in the context of what is most manual, what is most toilsome. So that's what Google does. Google says, what's the most toilsome part of your business, of your your process? And then let's start with that. And so I've kind of internalized that and I always use it. What's the most manual? What's the most toilsome? And then you can make that decision we were talking about earlier around change management, which is, and is this something that has a solution that fits in my workflow and find it so that you don't have to think about this version of technology change management where you have to spend years implementing, turn the lights off on a Friday on the old system and turn the lights on on Monday in this new system that you've spent years getting and all of a sudden you're in the future. I think what you just said about this defragmented world that technology is now allowing or enabling is much more open to taking a look at your system. Where are your black holes? Where are those blind spots, dead zones where you don't know when the data is coming back? You don't know the status of a piece of the process, especially around closing and start there. And then I think using that to, you know, crawl, walk, run, but I think we're already walking, walk through the process of taking each piece and digitizing it or or using one of the solutions that we're talking about. So that's how we're thinking about it at Stack. We're thinking about it like, take the pieces of the process you're ready to digitize now because of how manual, expensive, or otherwise blind you are in those areas and give those to a technology provider, give those to a technology company and empower, enable your people. So tying into what Josh was saying earlier, we're not seeing technology by and large replace human experts, human specialists right? That's not what's happening. What's actually happening is individuals who who know their business and who interact with their customers, clients in the market are becoming much more efficient, scaling, and much more powerful because of the technology platforms they use. So if I was thinking through my process over the last five to 10 years, I've probably addressed point of sale or digital application. I have an LOS that works in that client experience data underwriting and delivery to probably the GSEs, given where all the loans flow these days. I already have that. So where can I start to find efficiencies around transparency of my data or transparency of the process? What's the status of my closing? What's the status of this loan around the closing process? And then of course, post-closing. When you start to think about permission-based systems that let people do their work transparently with an audit trail, you actually cut down on a lot of the manual process and the reconciliation process that happens around documents, money, and data and post-closing too. I would definitely start there. Wow. I mean, there's one thing for sure. The next five to 10 years are going to be very, very interesting in this space because things are going to change. They have to. They don't make sense. They're not efficient economically, environmentally, experience-wise. I'd like to pivot uh, to a little bit more serious of a topic just for a second before we wrap up. How long is it going to be before we expect the Detroit Lions to start winning football games? Because like, I, I actually am starting to cheer for them now. Yes, I think everyone should, first off. I like the new Dallas Cowboys. Well, I, here's what I, the way I was thinking about it, Josh. So the Red Sox won several World Series since 2004. 
the Cubs got their win. The Cleveland Cavaliers brought a championship to Cleveland. It feels very much that Detroit's do. The Lions I mean, are the next franchise to get their uh, moment. I hope so. I mean, the Orioles have been to like one playoff uh, series uh, since my bar mitzvah. So, um, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're you know, doing as well. You know what's funny about this com- this upcoming Super Bowl is Matt Stafford, obviously the longtime quarterback of the Lions, is leading the Rams, and Eminem is performing as one of the stars of the halftime show. So somebody told me the other day, this is as close as Detroit's ever going to get to a Super Bowl. (laughs) (laughs) Jeremy, let's wrap up with one quick uh, rapid fire question for you since we already kind of know you, but what is your favorite sandwich? Oh, the BLT. And why? You know, that's a great question. I, I guess it's, uh, it's one of those like, uh, you can make it yourself, but it's better when somebody else does. Uh, and it's and it's slightly different everywhere. You know, you go to, let's say, California, they throw the avocado on it. You go um, to New York, it is stacked three times as high as everywhere else, right? So I think it, uh, it has a little bit of everything. Plus, it's got lettuce and tomato in the title. So you feel like it's offsetting a little bit of your uh, bad behavior. It's a, uh, it's a big salad with a big crouton. Um, (laughs) it's actually, it's funny that you say like, uh, it's better when somebody else makes it for you. I remember, you know, flower bakery, which is kind of like an institution here in Boston. And, um, Joanne's got a bunch of locations, super successful and just such a great business. I remember taking my nephew once in and he got a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and it's like, I can make you that, but man, they make a hell of a peanut butter jelly sandwich. <laughs> it sounds so simple, but the bread's so good. Have you ever had their grilled cheese? No. Oh my God. Grilled cheese is another sandwich that every once in a while you're like, how? Definitely, definitely not the same as when I make it at home. It's the butter, man. It's the butter on the griddle. That's right. The butter and the seasoned griddle. You can't, you can't uh, replicate a 50-year-old griddle at a diner. No, you can't. There's a lot of taste in there. <laughs> Jeremy, thanks for, uh, for chatting with us today. Of course. Great to talk to you, Coach Josh. Really appreciate it. See you soon. Talk soon. Thanks for the download. For every podcast episode, please visit stavi.com forward slash finside dash chats or join us on your favorite podcast platform. All rights reserved. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only and cannot be copied or broadcast without the consent of Stavi Incorporated. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide specific legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any products or business. Please seek legal or financial advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of Stavi. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors.